Hello, everyone, and welcome to Global Gurus, where every Friday we explore stories of international business and speak with industry leaders operating around the world. I'm your host, Philip Auerbach of Auerbach International. Thank you again so much for joining us. As most of you know, we start each podcast with a running segment called Faux Pas Fridays, where we explore a funny blooper or a mistranslation that does not quite convey the professional image that your organization wants to project. Uh, today's blooper is actually a sign in a public park in China near some benches, and the sign is both in Chinese and in English. And in English, it says very simply, when you're getting off with your lover, pay attention to your bag. So with that wonderful thought, I'd like to introduce today's guest, who is Dan Vega. And Dan is an entrepreneur, a speaker, a business coach, a talk show host, and an investor. He's got an amazing background with many years' experience, many companies, and a lot of global and domestic experience. Welcome, Dan. Delighted you're joining us. Thank you, Phil. Glad to be here. Yeah. So um, perhaps you could start, as I start with many of our guests, by asking about your background of um, how you grew up and how you gained your global experience. You know... I uh, come from the, I grew up in the Los Angeles, LA area. Um, both my parents loved me, but they, they always had, they were in survival mode, not thrive, but they were surviving. My mother was, a, she was a teacher's aide. My father was a, a salesman of many different things. And uh, we had our problems as a family. He, he, he had a lot of uh, hangups and, and some addiction problems. And so it was a rough, rocky road. And I just grew up in that environment like so many people do of, you know, which bills do we pay? Which ones do we push? Right. And probably Peter to pay Paul and just kind of making it. And, um, I got to a point where I was making it and I, I kind of was under the impression that I was doing well because all of my peers were like, wow, you're paying all your bills. That's fantastic. I, that was my first objective, I guess. And I thought, well, this isn't, this is kind of existing, but it's not living. And, as you know, I have a, bath, a background in mathematics. And so because of that, I got the interest of some really successful people in the Silicon Valley area that uh, fortunately for my sake, they wanted to mentor me and they took interest in me. And that really worked out well because I didn't have that father figure. And uh, really from there, I had steady growth. I think the fifth or sixth mentor that I had I was probably now about 19 or 20 years old, was one of the Forbes 400. He was number 25 on the Forbes list. And oh. this guy just was, you know, the business he was doing, the success he had, not just in financially, but with his family and his friends and faith. It was just a really, it was something I wanted to emulate. And that kind of put me on the road originally uh, hmm. towards success. That's great. And was he involved in international business? Yes, he you know, he had a net worth of four or five million dollars. He was doing business all over the world. In fact, I remember one time um, they did a big write-up on him in Success Magazine, and he has his fan hand over his face. It's a really famous issue, and it says the billionaire nobody knows. And inside the article, it talked about how he would make over four hundred million a year just interest only before he raised the finger. 
wow. before he even went to work. And, uh, you know, a lot of our friends kind of poo-pooed on that. I said, I can't believe he makes that much money. But I admired him for it because here's a guy that obviously is never going to spend the money he has. Right. Yet he kept working. And the reason he kept working is he wasn't working for money. He was working for impact. He wanted to help others. And uh, certainly that's what he did. And come to find out, majority of that that recurring revenue uh, was was international. Oh, yeah. Fascinating. So did he ever take you on trips with him? Yeah. So it started off as a mentor-mentee kind of relationship. I'm a young guy. I had no business experience, really. And um, he looked after me in a very fatherly way. And then eventually, you know, I was like, I got to listen twice as much as I talk. And for me, that's a lot of listening. So uh, I, uh, I I really tried to just absorb. And for a couple of years, that was kind of the relationship. And then we started, you know, joint venturing. I would I would travel with them. We started joint venturing on different projects and partnering on things. And then eventually, towards the end of our relationship, he passed away a few years back. He would say, hey, let me run this past you. What do you think of that? Wow. Uh, and, and so I could actually really contribute uh, as well. So. Are you able to mention his name or is it confident? Yeah, sure. It was Bill Bartman. Bill, and, uh, Bill Bartman. Bartman. Yeah, yeah. E N A N. Yes, out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hmm. And uh, he really was a believer. I mean, this person had more success than you know most people on the planet, but he was a big believer in having some anonymity. You know, he he liked kind of having the luxury of being able to do what he wanted to do and make a large impact. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, one thing he told me was. Because I used to talk to him, especially in the last few years, about social media. We had that discussion a lot. I'm not real active on social media, and there's a there's a purpose kind of for me behind that. But I remember having discussions with him about social when when it first kind of really Facebook and the others really started getting traction. About hey man, don't you want your presence on social? Which looking back now is a really ignorant question for him <laughs> uh, for me to ask. But he said. Uh, you know, when we think of influence these days, we think about social influence, you know, being on these social platforms. And he asked me a question one day. He said, what is a, 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 a really um, high measure of, of uh, influence? Being connected on the front lines to maybe tens of thousands of people or even a million people where they have you, you know, you're on a social influence or having the ear of a hundred powerful men. And he's like, I don't have to be out there, but you know, some of the biggest players in the world, I advise them and I have their ear. And that's a lot of influence. And I I always remember that, Um, you know, so with my own plan, I've tried to kind of follow that as well. You know, I think that I'm connected to a lot of the right people and I advise a lot of the right people, but social in influence just doesn't, it's not a part of my plan. Makes a lot of sense. So um, I know that you've done business in other countries, um, primarily, I believe, um, throughout Europe, as well as uh, Asia and Africa and India, um, and some in South and Central America as well, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell me some stories of some of your experiences in terms of what, what worked, what didn't work? Um, and just from different countries. 
Yeah, actually, I think that, uh, I think that, uh, first of all, you have to be doing, um, international business. I mean, back, you know, a couple decades ago, if you were doing, let's say you live in the U S and you're doing a business across the U S you were considered a pretty big company or a pretty big player, but with today's, you know, world of social media and you have mechanisms like zoom and other things. It's, it's crazy not to be expanding our company to nationally, if not globally. I mean, it's just, we're not taking advantage of things. I, I do business. I'm on conversations every day for people from, as you mentioned, Europe, Australia, Asia, all over the place. And we're just sitting here doing business face to face. And it's a huge missed opportunity if we're not expanding our business globally into other countries. I mean, that goes for them in other countries that might watch this. We got to expand in the, in the U.S. markets if we're not already, right? Now, to your question, there's different challenges, of course, different pivots. Um, and along with those things, sometimes the difference in culture that we have to really uh, kind of think about and prepare for. Um, in 2006, I started a, uh, a university called Blue University. It's B-L-U University. And we tried to uh, create a very high-end curriculum for entrepreneurs and business leaders. So I'm not knocking traditional education. There's plenty of people that are doing that already. But if you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, an architect, you know, engineer, some specified science, traditional might be the path. But for the person that wants to be an entrepreneur, they want to launch an app, build a product, you know, go into the entertainment or arts, whatever those things are, that education is not going to work well. You need a different type of education. So we wanted to create a school that was very successful people that have actually made it in the real world. These are people that have taught business and actually have done business globally. And they're teaching what they've learned. It's not somebody teaching hypothetically in the classroom. And as we expanded, of course, we ran into the challenges as we scaled throughout the U.S., but then we thought, wow, we're really about impact. We have to, we have to get to other countries. So our first venture was opening a brick and mortar in Nairobi, Kenya. Mm. And, uh, that had some challenges, right? Um, there's a lot of, and first of all, the people that I've met throughout Africa and I've done a lot of business in Africa, the majority of them are amazing people, but there's always a few. What, you know, people that give everybody a bad name. There's some scams you got to watch for. There's certain different things that you have to, to be on guard with. And that, that goes for any country, I think. Um, but we still have that school, uh, today and we're really still very glad that we've done it. We've ha we've been able to impact a lot of uh, people's lives in Africa. Um, I, I think what the underlying problem is, Philip, is. Yeah. A lot of people look at ethics and values as just a black and white thing, like this is ethical, this is right. And I, I will say, and as you know, that I am uh, the head of a company that's based around ethics, um, there is different levels. Um, so sometimes there's things that let's say in the United States that it's, it's not illegal, but it doesn't make it ethical. Right. So. In the United States, the bar has been set so low when it comes to ethics. It's like, okay, this company's not, they're not breaking the law. 
and they have, and so they've done business for 20 years without breaking the law. We deem them as a very high ethical company. That's not necessarily true. Just not breaking the law doesn't mean you're a very ethical company. And sometimes we'll find ourselves in situations where we have to make a decision and we can go this way or this way. Both ways are ethical, but one might have a, might, a higher moral standard, might like, well, this, this is more ethical. This could actually impact more people. This could help power more, generate more money to be shared, whatever. And so I think that there is a, a range of, of ethics. Um, and I think that that differs from country to country. You get into some third world countries that are having a hard time keeping food on the table and sustaining shelter and some basics. Right. Their range of eth ethics might be a little lower. Does, they're not breaking the law per se in their country, but what's acceptable behavior with them might not be acceptable behavior to you. Right. Doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it, there's a difference there that we have to make sure that we discuss and create some fixed parameters before we decide to do business. And I've seen that really in, in uh, most, cult uh, most cultures that I, I do business in is let's have some discussions. Let's really think about parameters uh, of what we deem, you know, what, what the terms are and what we think ethical behavior is. And uh, sometimes going into a business deal with uh, certain countries, I'll just say, let's, let's put down a list of what we think is ethical behavior. And if things go south with our company, what should be some of the uh, maybe ramifications? How would we fix it? Before I even do business, like if, if, if we got into this deal and it went south, how would we think about, correcting. And you would be surprised some of the, well, we'll just send a group of people over there to take care of them. I'm like, okay, well, from where I'm from, not great. <laughs> That's probably not the best uh, uh, way to, to go about things, right? But it's acceptable in other places. So we do have to have a lot of those conversations. But I will say that uh, although doing business internationally does present some challenges, it's absolutely necessary if we're going to um, allocate the right resources. Because, you know, I know we've talked before, Philip, that the number one focus of a true entrepreneur and a good person is, is about impact, right? We have to be others focused. We have to provide real value to others and without stepping on the heads and shoulders of people and, and really thinking about upholding a high standard when it comes to morals and ethics. However, right behind that, I will say, that we have to have the proper view of money and not just the proper view of money, but we have to get really good and effective at monetization. Because the fact of the matter is if our vision is to impact tens of thousands or millions of people, mm -hmm. you know, that takes millions of dollars, right? Like I love your charity as a matter of fact of, you know, I, I had no idea so many nonprofits kind of fell by the wayside in just a few short years because of the lack of resources. So setting up, a nonprofit to help facilitate and, and strengthen these other nonprofits is, is absolutely amazing to me. And as you know, you know, if you want to impact tens of millions or tens of thousands of people or potentially millions, it's expensive. You have to have a lot of money to do that. So I hate when people on, on social platforms or Instagram or whatever, they'll be saying one thing out of one side of the mouth of, it's not about the money, it's just about helping people. We don't care about the money. We just want to help more people, more people, more people, which I get, it should be about people first. Oh, but they're virtually putting no attention on the dollars and cents side of things. And if we don't really get really good at the monetization side, 
we're never going to allocate the appropriate resources it's going to take to accomplish the first objective, right? So that's why I feel like, you know, generational wealth was never my, my number one intention. It was high on the list, but it wasn't number one. But it is necessary if you want to, you know, be able to accomplish that first objective and help. One of the major issues with developing countries, especially, is what we would very simply call bribery. Um, yeah. And, you know, as, as you mentioned, and as you know, uh, what is ethical in one country, what's acceptable in one culture is not acceptable in another, as you were just saying. Um, but bribery seems to be the primary issue that Western companies, Americans and others deal with when they deal with developing countries. And bribery, of course, has many forms, whether it's bakshish, like a little tip, or whether it's, you know, millions of dollars in a um, consulting fee uh, to get a contract from a government minister. Um, so how have you dealt with those kinds of issues? I really run into it. Well, I can't, I, I, the mute seems to be on. I can't hear you. You mean now? No, now it's better. Yeah. Okay. I've certainly dealt with it many times. Um, and again, it's kind of like what we were talking about. There's a range of, you know, here, if people ask you for money, it's, it's a bribe. But over there, even the most ethical companies and most ethical people, they're like, this is just the way it is here. It's not a bribe. It's just part of the culture and it's part of the way to do business. Right. right. I'm like, well, okay. So as you mentioned, sometimes it's a coaching fee or it's some other type thing that you have to build in to the business um, because that's just the standard, you know, MO down there in many countries. And I've dealt with that throughout India and Africa, especially, and, and even South America uh, as well. But, um, you know, what I try to do is just try to have my parameters of what I'm comfortable with. You know, like if somebody in the U.S. is like, we'll let you put your product in these stores, but we need a kickback. And there's a legal compliance issue where we can't do that. That's a no go. But if you're in a country that's like, oh yeah, this is perfectly acceptable behavior. And this guy needs a hundred dollars per unit as a, as a advisory fee. And that's just how it goes. And I'm like, is that against any compliance? No, it's still, I'm like, okay, we got to get the deal across the line. You know what I mean? So you have to have kind of what you're comfortable with, but I, I've, I've dealt with it many times. And there's a, there's been a few cases where we just could not see eye to eye. It was just, you have bribery and then you have the next level, which is real crime. Right. And it's like, look, I can't, I can't participate in this. And then you are happy to leave with your life on some of those. <laughs> I'll give you a, for instance, Philip. Yeah. So we were actually, uh, one of my guides that was working very, we were investing really heavily in commodities. And he's like, look, man, there's a gold mine in, in uh, Kenya. And um, this guy's got a lot of gold for this price and he wants to move it in the U.S. And there was a great margin. And I told him, I said, look, I've done this before in different Af African countries. And it's, you're dealing direct with the mines, which is great. But there's a lot of issues there. That, and we're, we're going to have to have a lot of documents and things signed. And, and there's a lot of vetting. Trust me, I know these people, blah, blah, blah. So I send my guy down to Kenya. And he sends me back, he sends me back pictures of him and the guy with just 
bucket like these are probably 10 like a like these big containers probably 50 gallon buckets full of gold nuggets there's probably 20 of them and he shoots a video where he's dipping his hand in my, my guy and it's just wow. gold and they verified the, the the purity of the gold it was real deal and it was all this gold was in a warehouse picture like a 40 or 50,000 square warehouse that pallets upon pallets of USD, just cash and Europe, like in Europe, like just pallets of cash, like hundreds of millions. And I was like, I gotta be honest, that scares the bejesus out of me. Like yeah. if I had that much cash and gold, something seems not good. No, 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 trust. It's all good. We verified everything. Well, the scam they were running, it wasn't that the gold wasn't real and it wasn't that the purity of what they were promising wasn't real. And it wasn't that they were going to try to screw us on the price that was agreed upon, which is normally where you're going to run into all the hiccups. Problem was we signed all the documents. You load the, the gold onto a plane to go home, right? Everything's kosher or seems kosher. Then they tip off the cops and the cops come and pull up on the airstrip the, the cops in Kenya or the parts cops in America? Cops in Kenya. And before you take off. So they let you get all the way loaded on the plane. No hiccups. Everything's legit. They took off the cops in Kenya. They stop you on the runway and they say, hey, what are you doing? Well, I got these documents. I'm buying gold from this guy. It's all legit. Here's all the paperwork. We have everything. And they say, look, uh, since this deal has happened, there's another compliance thing that we have to meet. And um, you can't take this gold out of the country. And you're like, no, I already wired the money. Talk to Bob. He's over here. And we did the deal. And we don't care what Bob says. We don't care what that says. You have two choices. Either leave and, and try to leave with the gold. And you'll be in a, in a, in a Nairobi, uh, Kenya prison. Or drop the gold off and get out of here. Wow. Which one do you want to do? And you've already done everything. You've already paid. Yeah. And then you just have to fly away with no losing the cash. And then they just sell it to the next guy. And they keep doing it over and over and over and over. So I've had a few hiccups where they it stung me and got me good. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I've learned to do is do a little bit of business to see if it goes through and build a relationship and then start getting into deeper water. But uh, I've certainly had uh, my share of, uh, of uh, some payoffs for sure. Well, that's a very sophisticated scam, right? Yeah, there. very much. <laughs> wow. Um, and may I ask how much this payment was? Was it half a million dollars? Half a million. Oh God! Wow. Yeah. But it's like if there was four of us. Like, is all of our lives worth a half a million? Or <sighs> I don't want to be stuck in an African prison. Right. So we're, we're like, guys, are we good with eating this? Let's just get the hell out of here. <laughs> wow. So someone yeah. there was getting very rich off of that. Very rich. Amazing. Yeah. Um, two questions. One is, um, can you report these people to Interpol, even though Interpol is European? And second, um, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which governs how Americans do business abroad. How did you manage that? We hired some attorneys and we, we got down the road on this for about a year. And after a year's attorney fees and basically our own attorneys saying, look, you can't do much. 
I mean, you could, you could keep this thing alive, but you'll just pay attorney's fees for a decade and probably nothing will happen. Right. We decided to just, at some point you got to cut your losses and maybe change your, your vetting process or, you know, mm. be able to look out for new, create a new procedure or process, which is what we did. But in that case, we didn't do much. And, you know, now I will say that, you know, I, to that one, I have done successful business in Africa and like I said, throughout Europe and Asia without any of those problems. So I don't want that one negative story. We've had a few negative stories. That was the biggest one, but I don't want those few negative stories to kind of, you know, give people trepidation about expanding globally because, you know, there's such a big upside, as you know, to doing business internationally, you know, stuff that America's just, it's got a lot of competition and a very high standard on certain things. Right. So when you expand into other markets like South American markets or European markets, frankly, you don't have all the, all the competitions. I, I deal a little bit with, with uh, media and you could have a C-class celebrity here, let's say a singer that's never really going to be able to break through in the uh, music industry and send them over to Germany and the guy's filling 20,000 person stadiums every night, right? <laughs> Same thing with public speaking, you know, a lot of people have a hard time breaking into the seminar business in the U.S. So what we'll do is we'll go to other countries or we'll go to Dubai or, you know, Germany or other places. And it's a lot easier to get bigger paydays to build capital and get a bigger name. You know, Tony Robbins even had that where he was having a really difficult time breaking into you know, his own backyard, California. What he did was he went to the Ukraine, eventually that went to Russia. He was wow. people like Gorbachev, people, heavyweights from those countries were showing up. Oh. And then he came back to the US as an international kind of star and everybody then accepted him. So sometimes it's easier to do business. Um, I found, especially in, uh, you know, uh, I won't say especially, but in, in a lot of the, uh, Spanish-speaking country, the, the culture is just so family-oriented there. Right. It's just, it's such a great network to expand your business into. Um, Are there certain businesses that you've been involved with that, that thrive heavily in Latin America because of the family orientation? <laughs> yeah. So with uh, education, um, we've done really well in, in Spanish-speaking countries because you know, they're just trying to, to learn and they don't have access to what maybe we have access to in here in the States. And other, the other decision of like, can I afford to put myself in, you know, $80,000 of the debt for my education is another big question, right? right? That would take them the rest of their life to pretty much pay off. So we've done really well in those areas. Also, um, we do a lot in, uh, as you know, I, I founded a book publishing company years ago. Europe was a really great market uh, for us hmm. uh, and even Asia for, for books um, because we had strong ties to distribution mm-hmm. to help put the book out, um, you know, very concentrated throughout the U.S. and Canada. And then we would develop foreign partners to sell foreign rights to other um, publishers throughout Asia and other countries mm. that, uh, you know, really, really helped boost our sales and really kind of made us from a, 
from a local or regional company to a global company, a lot of that was based on foreign contracts, foreign relationships. That's fascinating. Um, when you're talking about Latin American education, do you mean BLU uh, University or something yeah. else? Yeah, uh, for us, it's been through the mechanism of the university. Um, but I have a lot of friends as well that are really in the education space that are also thriving in those, you know, throughout South America and Mexico and other places. Um, but yeah, in our own experience, it's been through Lee University. Um, what about, uh, I guess, business practices as you looked at you know, the ethics for one thing? It's a fascinating model, basically, to you know, yeah. run out what you're what your expectations are going to be before you start, even. Uh, but in terms of other practices such as, um, I don't know, uh, operations or management or marketing or pricing, something like that, how does that affect, how does that affect what you've been doing? So those aspects are mostly pros, right? Because honestly, what we found is a lot of different, uh, throughout Asia, you know, the, the, business professionals, many of them speak English. Um, most of Europe, it's kind of mandatory to, to, to speak English. So we have a lot that, and on occasion we use translators, but when it comes to, you know, being able to implement overseas, we find really great help at a very a reasonable rate. One crisis that we're kind of dealing with here in America, as you know, is there's a, there's a lot more opportunities right now than people. So especially I think about the service industry that's been just hammered or, you know, I was down by my house, uh, about a month ago, Burger King was offering 18 to $20 an hour, uh, for a cruise shift leader for Burger King, because they just can't staff good people because it's not that people don't want to work, but we have this many jobs and opportunities, particularly online and this many people, right? right. And so that's not the case in most countries, right? So it's easy to have retention. We don't have all the drop off. We have, uh, it's, it's finding great people to develop is very easy. Uh, finding them at a reasonable rate is very easy. Um, and, uh, so, so we've, when it comes to operations, we've really thrived. I think that's some of the largest advantages doing business outside. Fascinating. That's great. Um, what about some of the cultural issues that you've encountered in your many travels? Yeah. So. There's pros and cons. First of all, I love going internationally because I get to experience new cultures, right? I love going where the locals go and finding the little eateries. I'm kind of a foodie. So that that's an amazing, absolutely amazing experience. I've had my faux pas, to be honest with you, Philip, over the years, you know, especially um, when it comes to body language or using physical gestures. So as you know, that... Uh, we can use physical gesturing or emphatic gestures where we use our voice to emphasize certain things. Mm. And if you're in Asia, you know, emphasizing just in the wrong place can have a completely different meaning in right. many countries. And if you're in other countries, just using the wrong gesture, something in America that's very common would be this, which for 75% of the world does not come up very well. Keeping <laughs> your thumb up and yes, like, good. <laughs> that's very offensive in many countries. So what I've learned from experience is, you know, like I said, I've had some faux pas to really investigate the local culture and how things work, especially in Europe and uh, Asia and uh, get to know that before we go over. What I do like is 
we we've we do a lot of classes like on nonverbal communication and body language because mm-hmm. that is the universal language. And and I've had some situations where we were really stuck in negotiations that I've had to rely on that. In fact, I'll tell you, several years ago, we 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 owned a lot of sales type companies that had like we were like owned franchises for medical equipment, different types of medical equipment for like respiratory problems, whatever. And we, we were really good. We built many, many of these offices. And my little brother started young. And there was like a German-based manufacturer that was selling this one of these kind of class two medical devices in the U.S. And it was 50 states, about 40 countries. And the, the president for the United States, Puerto Rico, and Canada, he lived in, in uh, right outside of Akron, Ohio. And the guy's name was Bill Holden uh, after the actor. And he, he actually uh, had a heart attack and he wanted to, to have somebody take over. The, the, the founders of the company in Germany wanted a new U.S. president, right? Somebody to kind of lead things in the U.S. And so what he wanted was he wanted me to kind of take over as his successor as president. And I didn't, I didn't have the time to do it. But what I really wanted was my little brother, hmm, president. He was about 26 at the time, but he knew the business as well as I did. And I wanted him to have that opportunity. So me and him, uh, through the direction of corporate in Germany, we fly to Ohio. We meet the former uh, or the current president and uh, get his kind of blessing. And then this guy from Germany is supposed to fly in to meet us for the final yes or no. And so I will never forget this as long as I live is um, (laughs) so I hired a local translator from one of the local universities to help, you know, and I, I'm, I was naive at the time. So I'm like, guy speaks German and English. You'll do. <laughs> Good enough. And so we go into this room and what we were asking for was a $5 million sign on bonus. And we wanted this, you know, the United States, all over us, part of Canada, wanted my little brother to do it. Here's the, all we had a bunch of terms. So this guy flies over from Germany, his name was Helmut, like a dog from hell, literally Helmut. <laughs> and uh, so the guy flies, I don't know how many hours, 14, 15 hours, whatever it is. And he, he lands and we say, hey, we could take you to your hotel we got for you. We could do business tomorrow. Would you? He's like, nope, nope. He wants to get right to business. He just flew 15 hours. Nope, right to business. I said, would you like to get a bite to eat? We could have, nope. He wants to. Okay, we want to go right back to the office and negotiate. I'm like, fine. And this guy spoke very little English. So when I say very little, I'm talking probably less than 10 words. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so me and my little brother are sitting in the office, and then you got Helmut and then the translator. And we're trying to negotiate. And, man, it is going badly. I could just tell. He was, like, very abrupt and aggressive. And we're losing the deal for sure. And so the other problem was our translator was weak. So I would have some authority in my voice. I'd say, tell him this. Like I, I wanted not just the, what I wanted to be relayed, but a, the way I wanted it delivered. The intonation. And he would be like this. Uh, are you sure you want me to say that, Bill? I'm like, yeah, say that. Tell me exactly the way I said it to you. Okay. His body language was like, sir, he's delivering it like this. And it, we're just dying here. 
So finally, I said, after about an hour, they're getting ready to leave. I could tell he wants to fly back to Germany and it's over. We lost the deal. So I thought we need to go back to basics. I thought, let's take a quick break. We get up. I pull my little brother aside in the restaurant. I said, bro, we're losing this deal. I can read by the guy's body language, but he's not happy. We're losing the deal. Let's, let's rely on what we know. You know, body language is, is, you know, a universal language, right? And so let's, let's just go with what we see. And so I get back in the room and I tell the translator, I said, listen, you son of a gun. Here's exact, exactly what I want you to tell them. Here's the way I want you to tell them. And I want you to do that with your hand on the desk when you, after you say it. Lock your hand on the desk. On the desk. So I say it right to him, just like that. Do that. He's like, are you sure? I said, yeah, man. And finally he did what I said. And he, he just got eye to eye with the guy and just delivered it, did that. And then nobody spoke and we all just sat there. And the guy goes, good, good. Okay. We do. And my little brother became the president of this German company. <laughs> when you talk about some pivots, man, and we had to rely, we could not speak each other's language and the translator was not doing a good job. So we had to rely on what we did know. Fortunately, we had some experience with nonverbal communication because that is the universal language. So even to this day, I try to have a great translator or I try to have, you know, do business with people that at least speak enough English. But I also try to be as, as uh, up as I can when it comes to nonverbal communication, because that has gotten me out of many, many pickles and is, is universal. Well, what do you think changed it? Because they were so, you know, Helmut was so adamant that it was not going to happen. But what was your body language that changed it, do you think? Well, it was my, I think it was the delivery, the authoritiveness, but also that he doesn't have another choice. You know, we've been in the, so I kind of negative, we went through, look, you, we've been in the business this long. We've done this high of volume of business. We're young, we're unattached, right? We proximity wise, we're here and there's, we know everybody else you're considering and there's no other choice. Okay. And I went through the reasons of why there's no other choice. So let's just stop wasting time basically. Cause I, I kind of thought about his personality. He was that type A kind of aggressor. So with type A aggressors, if you come in giver, they hate it. You have to tone match them. If they're here, you can't come in here and walk your way up. You have to tone match them as aggressive and then walk them down. So that's what I did. And it wound up working in our favor. It's fascinating. Um, you've talked about body language as being universal, except that in my experience, it isn't. As you probably know from Asia, the Asians are much more... Um, reticent, you know, you can't, they don't give a lot of facial expressions um, and they don't smile. They don't gesture very much. Um, and also you have to know in Asia, the position in the room where someone is sitting, really who is the CEO or who, who's got the power, who doesn't, um, yeah. you may be negotiating with a, you know, a key middle manager, but ultimately the CEO and senior committee have to approve it. So what do you do there? Well, and that, that actually could be intentional on their part, right? So it is trickier in Asia. What we've seen is we'll generally get on the ground there and we'll set up a baseline. Uh, what, so if, they, if we're not in Asia, they're here, whatever. But we'll stage the room. This might sound bad, Philip, but we'll actually stage the room. We'll set up cameras. And then we'll have somebody kind of bring them coffee or tea and some refreshments for five minutes. 
and we'll study a normal baseline behavior of what we can collect within that five minutes. So before we go into the room to negotiate, uh, what we've seen in the past is depending on where a person's sitting as who's kind of in charge. And we've seen them try to dupe us to where the person that they had sitting in the right seat was actually not the powerful person. Right. And they had them sitting in a different seat. So what we would do is actually skirt, like we would tell some joke that is not inappropriate, but a little distasteful. This might sound like a crazy strategy. And then what they'll do is they'll all look at the person to see if he accepted. Right. And then we'll say, we're sorry for that joke. We just wanted to see what the dynamics were. And then we'll say, we perceive that you're actually the person we're supposed to talk to. And just by being that transparent with them, they appreciate like, these are some sharp guys that figured out, you know, and that kind of breaks the ice. So we've done that on multiple occasions, but generally, you know, even if you're trying to be aware of body language, you know, we kind of know that if you do this, press arms, that might be a sign of resistance. Yes. Or an ankle lock, right? But what we found is it's really three, three things that make it so. You have to have three different characteristics to the positive or negative to make it so. So you can kind of be aware, like somebody might be talking and start to, and then they uncross arms because they remember. Mm -hmm. But then a few minutes later, without realizing, as soon as they stop thinking about it, maybe their ankles lock or they'll, they'll show their mouth with no lip, like real thin lips for them. Right. So it doesn't have to be three things at the same time, but within five minutes or so, if they show three indicators, it's easier to tell that the way that their heart's kind of feeling. And, and so we'll, we'll look at the room for a few minutes before we go in to try to figure out a normal baseline behavior Mm -hmm. and, uh, certainly figure out who's the person we're supposed to be talking to, but it's definitely trickier. I think a method that, that you taught me, um, you can deliberately say, drop a pen or a pencil so that you have to look under the table to see whose ankles are locked. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a lot of the top psychiatrists, they found that when somebody's ankles are kind of locked like this, they're like, we're not going to have a breakthrough today. They're not going to share when their feet are flat on the ground. Like, wow, we might have something today here. So yeah, I do that a lot. I'll drop a pen and I'll look and say, okay, I got the, I got this going on, but I want to see if I have any other verifi- verifiers. I'll look under the table to see if their ankles are locked or what I can see. Sometimes they'll have their hands folded on their lap, whatever. Hmm. That's fascinating also. Yeah. Um, any other cultural folk ponds that you've encountered? Well, I'll tell you one, uh, I don't know how appropriate this is for your show, but I'll tell you the clip, brief plus notes of the one that almost got me killed. Um, and this is by all means, it's not a, a negative to go to this place. I think in any place, you can be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. But back in 2011, I got asked to, um, so every year, these global entrepreneurs, they will have a summit uh, it's like a financial summit and they'll rotate that between London, Dubai and, and South Africa. And these are like the world leaders with the global entrepreneurs. And they're basically talking about, uh, in one word, I guess we could say control. And so a lot of the subjects are centered around countries that have hit hyperinflation and then have completely crashed. Uh, and then, and then they've adopted a stronger currency. Right. And so, 
uh, the country of Zimbabwe had just went through hyperinflation. There's bread lines, the whole nine, and they crashed. And out of all the African countries, they actually adopted the U.S. dollar. So instead of using the RAND or other forms of currency like South Africa does, they adopted the U.S. dollar. So it did stabilize very quickly. Well, now it's a race of how do you get that on the ground and get cell phone towers up and phones in everybody's hands, and right? And so Branson, Richard Branson was down there and many others. And I got asked because of my mathematical background to go represent the United States for this summit and uh, help restructuring like a mathematical plan that's more sustainable, including, you know, what their gross domestic product is and all those things. So I was going to be down there for several weeks. And um, it was really the trip of a lifetime. So I flew into South Africa and the Johannesburg. I um, went to, for the first time, this meeting was going to be held in Zimbabwe. So I attended the meeting and and uh, did all their, they have some talk, kind of like Larry King type talk shows. They go out to the whole country. I was on the shows. I met with all the different presidents of different countries and their ministers of finance and, you know, golfed with them all and did the whole deal. Put on several other seminars while I was there. Literally one of the greatest experiences of my life. I was surreal, you know, sitting with these people conducting, you know, representing the U.S. So I guess... Um, because of the way that I conducted myself and it, and I was very um, prone to doing media, which, which maybe was my faux pas, but I was doing a lot of media while I was there. Anyway, the last day that I'm there, it's like the greatest trip ever. The last day I'm there, we were assigned this driver the whole time. And he was a very South African proper, you know, very uh, proper guy named Wellington. And I said, hey, Wellington, I said, uh, I said, I would like to, you know, we're leaving tomorrow. I'd like to go to a place where um, we could actually uh, get some souvenirs for the family. Some I want the real deal African stuff with the women with the baskets and the like, commerce. I want to get to the real deal stuff and buy some souvenirs for the family. He's like, don't worry, brother. I know exactly where to take you. So right before we leave on this trip, the president of the country, he calls me, right? And he said, listen, uh, so so the, the rightful, at that time, the, the president uh, that everybody kind of looked to was a guy named Robert Mugabe. Mugabe. He kind of gone down as one of the worst rulers in history. He's a very, very brutal guy. There was another guy named Beatty at the time that actually had run for president. And I believe he won, actually. And they were like, try to get me out of the White House or their version of the White House. I'm staying. Robert's like, I don't care what the, that says. I'm still ruling. So half the country looked at BT as the rightful ruler. The other half looked at Sir Mugabe out of like fear, right? Because he would burn your house down or shut the water. He shut the water off while we were there. We couldn't have access to water. Crazy. So this guy BT calls me. He's like, look, we want to have one more meeting with you. I know you're leaving tomorrow. And he's a great guy. He said, uh, but, uh, our most successful entrepreneur of our country. Um, he's in charge of all these banks. I want him to, he's here and I want him to meet you. He's our Bill Gates, he said. He's our Bill Gates. I said, okay. So out of respect, I threw a suit on and I told, I was with my driver and my publicist. I said, look, before we go shopping, I got to make one more pit stop downtown because they're calling me back and it's probably only going to take an hour. So, 
we're getting into the car. So it's me and my driver, Wellington, my publicist, Margo, and then some guy that had no idea who he was, an American young kid, about 24. He's like, hey, dude, I'm from Kansas City, Missouri, man. Can I get a ride in a tail with you guys? <laughs> I'm like, sure, man. No problem. I don't know if clue who this person is. We all go. I go meet with the guy, Abidi. I meet with the, the Nigel guy. We take photos. All good. Great, greatest trip of my life. Unbeknownst to us, we get back in the car and I said, now let's go shopping. We drive way out to this place in Zimbabwe that's got like 50,000 people that have been displaced and they're all living in these fields and they're just trading. It's like a giant swap meet of anything you can imagine. And we're pretty far out in the, in the rurals by this time. Well, we had no idea that I guess because I had done so much media and I had done this, I was meeting with important people. They thought that I was important. So they actually attempted to kidnap me. Oh, no. And so um, we're driving down this rural road, and there's like these these dirt kind of intersections. They're not really roads, but like there's cattle and people crossing. You have to kind of roll to a stop. Well, all of a sudden, this pickup truck blocks us. Hmm. And I see guys jump out with automatic weapons and machetes, and they're just bum-rushing us. And so I tell the driver, back up, back up, back up. Well, they block us with another car in. And it's like, so the only thing I have time to is I turn to the back seat and I tell my publicist, Margo, I said, look, no matter what, don't let us, don't let them pull us out of the car. Well, within seconds, bam, they're in the car. They are grabbing us. We're getting beat on. Hmm. They have my whole body out of the car. I'm just hanging on to the steering wheel. Wow. Right. And my whole body's out of the car. They're trying to get us out and. It's brutal, man. It is really brutal. And it's interesting because for a second, I thought my son was three at the time. I said, okay, this, you know, I don't know if my son will remember me. What video do I have? Like, I thought this is it, man. Well, eventually people were, it took so long. We fought them off long enough to where um, people started, they had like the first version of flip phones with cameras and they were filming. So these bandits, they noticed this. And they change their story and they speak a language they're called Shawnee. And they're telling our driver in Shawnee and where he's beaten up. They're telling the driver and like yelling at him to tell me something. But he's like, then they are now impersonating that they want, they're with the police division. And they want you to get in their car quietly. And they are going to drive you back there to take you to sort this all out to the jail. And then he goes, but um, I grew up in Sim. And that is not where the jail is. And they wish to hold you captive and rob you and to do bad things to you for money. So he told me like how he told me. I'm like, he's like, what do you want me to tell him? I'm like, I, I don't know, man. I was like, look, there's no way I'm getting in their car. Like that's not, so if they're going to kill us, they have to kill us in the street. Well, make a long story short. The, the truck behind us moved and we had to try to make a getaway. And I, I had this guy, I was kind of wrestling with this guy halfway in, halfway out of the car. I pinned him down. We actually made it to the jail and uh, almost had to do a month in a Zimbabwe jail. But we wound up kind of escaping with our lives, narrowly beaten up, but escaping with our lives. It was a really wild thing. And I'll tell you a funny story. Whether you're a fan or not, I will always owe this to Donald Trump because he got me out of it. They're going through my phone. They confiscated my phone. And they put us in a jail. They said, we don't know what's happening, but we'll sort this all out when the judge is back. I said, when's the judge going to come back? They said, in a month. <laughs> so I said, well, 
maybe I'll live, but I'm going to be in a Zimbabwe jail for a month. Well, within about an hour, they came back and they had my phone and they were going through it. And they said, I had pictures of the guy, BT, that I had just been with, who's the rifle. So they're asking me how I knew him. And I thought, man, I don't know what to say. So if, I, if they're on his side, I could get sprung. If they're against him, I could get worse. So I, 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 I told our driver, ask me, ask the question again. And I was trying to read body language. And then I, I just take a guess and I said, look, BT is a, I don't know the man, but I perceive him to be a good man. And, uh, you know, here's why I'm here, blah, blah, blah. I told him the story. And he said, BT, good man. We got spraying out of jail. Then they go through and they saw pictures of me and Donald Trump. We worked together for a few years. And they said, and so that was the whole thing. So now we're like all beaten up. Our clothes are all ragged. We're all messed up. And then they're like the same people. They're now wanting to take pictures with us. And like, we're trying to clean up and do this bit for the photos. <laughs> but uh, again, I love Zimbabwe. I love the people there. I think it was like, wrong place, wrong time. But uh, sometimes if you're, you know, a little too popular in those, those certain areas, it can yes. work against you for sure. Wow, what a great story. That's uh, marvelous. Um, one of our other guests, actually, on a podcast uh, told about how she almost got kidnapped. Actually, she did get kidnapped. Um, and so you've told the story of how you almost got killed. So yeah. I don't yeah. know if it's progress or not, but it's certainly fascinating. Wow. And that was 2011. I think that it's it's better. You have to have some precautions for sure. Right. Um you know, I was in Bangkok, Thailand recently, and despite popular belief in movies, I had many friends down there. They're like, this is a safe city. You could walk around at night. It's, mm. it's a great city. And they said one of the reasons that crime is so low is three things. Number one is they, they're very harsh on crime. So nobody wants to commit a crime. Number two is the culture there. They teach their children. A large part of the culture is about um, honor. Right. And so they teach their children and train their kids. And one of the biggest things is they eradicated hunger. So they said, look, we have, we haven't eradicated poverty, but here when, when restaurants have food and they make it, you know, they don't, in America at 1030, man, they throw it all out. Breakfast is over, throw everything out because we don't want to get sued. Right? right. We're afraid of being sued in compliance. But over there, it's like, look, there's food here. That's good. And there's people that have, so they'll have these drop-off stations. He's like, it's okay to have low-income areas, but when you don't have the hunger element, there's a lot less serious crime. And so I think that's that's the big thing of these countries. Most people are amazing. They're good people. But when there's hunger in some of these third world countries, there's going to be a few that are looking to take advantage of this. Yeah. Well, that's very true and very fascinating. <laughs> Uh, some great lessons for this country and other parts of the world as well. Um, what would, what else would you like to share with us? Your stories have been amazing. Any final lessons or anything you'd like to share? You know, the one thing I'll share, I thought a little bit about this, and I get asked quite a bit, you know, hey, there's a lot of keys to success, so there's a lot of things you can share with the audience. What would be the one thing? And I, if I have to pick something, I'll, I'll say the importance, and we've talked about this, I think, Philip, is the importance of separating our vision from our strategy, right? Mm -hmm. So if somebody's watching or listening to this podcast and they're, they're saying, man, I, you know, 
part of my personally, I don't have an objective anymore. I've been very blessed and fortunate. So I don't have a personal objective, try to make any more money. I'm not trying to have more personal influence. I really am working now. And what gets me out of bed every morning is kind of paying it back. You know, I was this snotty nosed young guy with an attitude that fortunately for me, these very great people, much greater than I'll ever be, I'm sure, took an interest in me and, and, you know, helped me along and helped me learn some things and put me in the right circles. And so I always remember that, you know, everybody deserves a chance. Everybody should have a chance to, uh, to make it successfully. However, we don't want to go into that to things with rose-colored glasses. And I think it's imperative for us to separate our vision from our strategy. And I'll tell you what I mean by that is most people at one time or another in their life will have this great vision of some, an idea or a vision of something they want to happen. And they get really clear on what it is. They might not have all the how. And frankly, if you wait for all the how you're going to do it, by the time you collect all the how, the world changed so much, you need a new how. So we just need to get started. We have 5% of the how jump in. Well, you'll have this great vision of what you want to accomplish, let's say nationally or internationally, globally, whatever, uh, based around your business. And then you have your strategy. And your strategy is something that you'll come up with kind of in a, in a classroom, so to speak, with some other people. Guys, what, how are we going to do this? How are we going to accomplish this vision? And you'll come up with a strategy. Now, it's, it's naive to think that that strategy right out of the gate is going to be able to facilitate the vision. It just won't. So from, from my experience, and, and I think this applies to most people, is that you have your vision. And when you have great vision, we need to lock it down and make it fixed. Where we don't move it, we don't scale it, we don't mess with the vision. It's, it's fixed metrics and it's locked. Then we have our strategy and that when we launch that strategy, it's going to roll five, six feet and then fall over and the wheels are going to come off and people get discouraged and they're like, Oh man, I thought I was finally onto something. I thought this one was the one that was going to work. And I'm like, yeah, it still is. You have to refine the strategy. If they're not mess with the vision, but constantly refines, we can move, refines, move the strategy, not the vision. So they might put the little car back together again and launch it, you know, a variation of the same strategy and they roll it. Now it rolls eight feet and falls over to the right. And the wheels come off. And by that second time, they're like, oh, man, what do they do? They're second guessing the vision. If the vision's still going to work, instead of just second guessing the strategy and manipulating and kind of, uh, you know, tweaking and refining the strategy, they're thinking, should I still do this? And what they'll do is they'll either lose belief in the vision or they'll scale back the vision. And they'll say, okay, even if we can only get 50% of this goal, it's still great. Like they'll scale the vision. And that's not what we have to do. We have to, once we have great vision, we have to leave it fixed. Those fixed parameters, we don't move. And what you have to do is just keep launching the strategy. And from my experience, and I think most successful people will tell you, on the sixth or seventh refinement, on the sixth or seventh tweak, hmm. that's when the, the strategy will now fully accomplish the vision. It pops and it'll, it'll actually accomplish what you want it to accomplish. But we have to keep those things separate. So in my own organizations, I've had a really clear vision of what I want to happen. And then I'll launch a strategy, a new strategy set on Monday. And I'll actually have my people go like this. Dan, you know, this isn't going to work, right? Like we're going to roll it out. I, they said, you know, it's not going to work, right? I go, I know. I'm so excited about it. Because I know going in, it's not going to work. But I need data collection. I need to know where it doesn't work and what does work, what elements succeed, what elements. 
So I'm going to roll that car. It's going to fall five feet over on the right and the wheels come off. I'm going to study like, okay, that's interesting. And it's on the six or seven or five, it works. And I need them to continue to do launch that car or marketing or whatever program to give me the data. So finally, my vision will, or my strategy will accomplish the vision. And I don't know if you've ever listened to the story of 7up, but in line with what we're saying, they started as 1up soda. They were going to 1up everybody else, and it was called 1up soda. But they didn't quite have the recipe right, and the guy went to 2up soda, and it was worse. And he went to 3up soda, and it was a little better, and 4up soda. He went all the way to 6up soda and says, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. And he got discouraged. And that's the problem. Most people give up five minutes before the miracle happens. But he got discouraged and he sold it to another guy. And the other guy just tweaked what the guy already had. He said, let's create a little lemon lime and let's do a little bit different marketing campaign. And I think it was, what is it, Coke? I think owns something. They come in and said, hey, we want it. Things to the moon now, seven up. It was the last tweet. Well, we got to stay in for it. So I think a big thing is, again, when we have vision, leave it firm and locked and fixed metrics. But don't expect our strategy on the first go around to accomplish and facilitate the vision. It's on the sixth or seventh refinement of the strategy that has the success. And that goes for our in business, but also our personal lives as well. So something to, to keep in mind. Well, well, that's amazing advice. Thank you so much. I had never heard that story before. <laughs> that wonderful strategy. Right. Well, today's guest, again, has been Dan Vega, uh, a visionary, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, a coach, a talk show host, an investor, a speaker. Um, and this has been Philip Auerbach with Auerbach International, A-U-E-R-B-A-C-H-I-N-T-I-N-T-L.com. And uh, in the beginning of the show, uh, Dan mentioned our nonprofit, and that is called the Auerbach Global Impact Foundation. And that is the website, theagif.org. So I hope all of you will join us next week for another edition of Global Gurus and their wonderful stories of international business. Thank you. Thank you.